Right, so we're going to continue in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, so if you'd uh, like to have that passage open before you, that would be helpful. Um, As we said last time, uh, chapter 9 of Zechariah is the beginning of the first of the two oracles or burdens that the Lord delivered through Zechariah in the second part of of the book. In the first eight verses, we saw the foretelling of a time when the nations around Judah would be destroyed, and yet Judah would be kept safe. And that is exactly what did happen uh, when Alexander the Great rampaged through the, the region 200 years later. Why was Judah preserved? Well, it was because her long-promised king was yet to come. So last week, we read in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. They were exhorted to rejoice, not simply because their enemies would be destroyed, not simply because they would be spared, they were to rejoice because their king was going to come. And about 200 years after Alexander the Great, their king did come. He was very much in contrast with Alexander the Great. We were told that uh, he would be righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that was Jesus. So in verses 1 to 9, We've covered a period of about 400 years. And then in verse 10, which we also looked at last time, uh, we looked even further into the future, as it looked to the time when his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And this is, this is wonderful. This is looking forward to the time when King Jesus will not only have come, but will rule over the whole earth. So in verse 10, we're really being fast-forwarded to eternity at great net speed. We've covered 400 years, then on into eternity. But in verse 11, it's as though the rewind button has been hit. You see, verse 11 begins by saying, As for you. As for whom? Well, it must surely be directed to to Judah in, in Zechariah's day because he's still addressing the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, and you there is, uh, is feminine, which is in keeping with it being Judah as well. It's as though he's saying, I've shown you the big picture. I, I've told you that you're being preserved so that my grand design can be brought to pass. But now what about Judah in the meantime? So in verses 11, um, 11 to 13... Uh, that we're going to look at this evening, uh, it will go on to answer that question in terms of who, what, and why. So firstly, let's consider who. The first thing to notice in these verses, uh, they are not about what Judah would do. You could imagine that having heard uh, the first ten verses and having been told that they would be preserved so that the king could come, 
their response could well be something like, okay, so what do you want us to do? What do you need us for? But when you look at the verses, you see that they aren't about what the Lord would require Judah to do. Rather, they're all about what the Lord would do for Judah. Very clear. In the NIV, um, in the space of these three verses, the Lord says, I will, four times. It only occurs three times in the ESV, but the, the sense is still very clearly that these verses are all about what the Lord would do. It's a very important lesson there, isn't there? The belonging to the Lord doesn't depend on what you do for him. It's all about what he does for you. The truly distinctive thing about being a Christian isn't what you do. I mean, yes, believers should seek and serve the Lord and please the Lord. Believers should be loving and caring and honest. Yes, believers should witness to the good news of Christ crucified. Believers should be waging war against sin in their lives. That's all true. Those things should all flow out from being a believer. But they aren't at the very hearts of being a believer. And that's a good job, isn't it? Because so often we fail in all of those areas. But Paul puts it well in Galatians uh, 2 verse 20 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's <laughs> I wondered if that might be the case. So, I'll make no further comments on that. I'll take it that you, you understand that perfectly well. Uh, first and foremost, the distinguishing mark of the Christian is a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's all about knowing him, trusting in what he has done. It's knowing that he lives in me. It's knowing that he's loved me. It's knowing that he's given himself for me. Well, the people of Judah had to see that their future, their existence, their value, their usefulness, didn't depend on anything they could try to do. It depended entirely on what the Lord would do. Well, let's, let's consider what. So it was all about what the Lord would do for Judah, but what would he do? Well, these verses tell us several things that he said he would do for them. Firstly, we see that he would rescue them. See that in verse 11? I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, don't misunderstand that, that, that statement. It doesn't mean that Judah was keeping people as prisoners and the Lord would set those prisoners free. They didn't have a sort of Guantanamo Bay type scenario going on there. But the sense is that many of those numbered among Judah would in some sense be prisoners. Now, of course, during captivity in Babylon, uh, they could all have been said, uh, been described as being prisoners in a physical sense. But in Zechariah's day, that was no longer the case. Uh, King Cyrus had decreed that they were to be released, and many had returned to Jerusalem. Um, uh, it's also true that many of them had chosen to stay in Babylon, but they were no longer there as prisoners. They, they were free to leave whenever they wished. Uh, whenever they wished. 
Rather, this is a description of the continuing state of the nation up to and beyond Alexander the Great. They could be considered as being uh, prisoners. They could be described in that way and as being in a waterless pit. Uh, That's quite reminiscent of Joseph, isn't it? Being thrown into a pit by his brothers. In Genesis 37, 23 and 24. We read there, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. And the Old Testament often uses this picture of a, a, an empty pit or an empty system, as the uh, NIV puts it, it also makes me think of toilets, but that's not not what it means. Uh, In doing so, it's not merely indicating imprisonment. These systems were were bottle-shaped. They had a a narrow entrance and then became much wider uh, underground. So if someone was thrown into one, they wouldn't be able to get themselves out again. they, They could not only... Uh, they could only get out if someone else lifted them out. So this idea of being in an empty system was used as a picture, not just of imprisonment, not, not just of loss of liberty, but of utter helplessness. A picture of being unable to free yourself. Uh, if someone else didn't lift you out, you wouldn't get out. Well, that's the situation Judah was described as being in. No wonder these verses don't speak in terms of them doing anything. There was nothing they could do. They were trapped, they were helpless. However, the Lord would do what they couldn't do for themselves. He said, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He'd set them free, he'd rescue them. And in view of that promise, he'd go on to say to them, O prisoners, of hope. They were helpless, but because of the Lord's promise, they weren't hopeless. And I think that's a a wonderful description of every Christian, isn't it? We are helpless, but we're not hopeless. We should know ourselves to be helpless, we should know that we can do nothing to save ourselves, but we should be certain that Christ has saved us. We belong to him. He's our helper. We know that he'll carry us through, so we're not hopeless. I think all too often the tendency is that we reverse helpless but not hopeless, don't we? We like to think that we can help ourselves. And when we find that we're unable to do so, we end up feeling wretched and hopeless. We must constantly look to Christ help and then we will be prisoners of hope. The Lord exhorts them to return to your stronghold. Um, Just as he hadn't spoken of a a physical prison, so now he isn't speaking of a physical fortress. He's their fortress. Psalm 46 verse 7 says, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our (coughs) fortress. So so when he speaks of delivering them, it's in order that they may return to their fortress. In other words, that they may return to him. So being prisoners in a waterless pit is a description of being without God and away from him. But he calls us 
to himself. And this is the, the natural condition in which we're born, isn't it? It's a condition of utter helplessness. We, we can't change it for ourselves. We, we can't escape by our own efforts. Only God can lift us out and set us free. And he can do that through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And so the, the gospel message really is, return to your stronghold. Come to me, says the Lord. And those who sets free and rescues from the water's pit of lostness and sinfulness and godlessness will come to him. Next we see that when people return to the Lord, he would restore them. Having said, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, he goes on to say, today I declare that I will restore to you double. He's announcing in advance that when they return to him, he'll restore them. He won't deny them or turn them away. Not only that, notice he says, I will restore to you double. In other words, he'll bless them to an even greater degree than in the past. Same is true for the believer in Christ, isn't it? Isaac Watts expresses it well in the verse of his hymn, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. Where he displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. That's the, the wonderful uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Well, next we see that having rescued and restored them, he would redeploy them. Uh, there in beginning of verse 13, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. Now Judah was the, the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, Ephraim was the northern kingdom of Israel, and it had long ceased to exist by this time. And yet the Lord mentions both Judah and Ephraim together, and I think that was a, a poetic way really of depicting all of the people of God. The idea here is that the Lord would use his people for his purposes. In pictures of the Lord as a, as a warrior, using Judah as his bow, and Ephraim as the arrow to be fired. So once his people have been rescued and restored, he will make use of them again against his enemies. Once again, it's the same with us as believers in Christ, isn't it? The Lord rescues us, he restores us, so that he can use us in the work of his spiritual kingdom. We've been rescued and restored through the work of Jesus Christ, he's our king, and instead of serving our own ends, we're to be redeployed in, in spreading his kingdom uh, until the time that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, as we saw last time back in verse 10. We're to spread his kingdom by acting as salt and light in this world and spreading the gospel of salvation. God's grace through faith in Christ. Moving on, we see that the Lord would not only use them, he would rouse them. Verse 13 says, I will stir up your sons, O Zion. The Lord wouldn't merely use them as though they were inanimate tools, if you like, in his hand. No, he'd rouse them, he'd stir them up so that they were motivated and acted willingly. They'd be wholeheartedly involved in acting as his instruments. 
And then we're told uh, who they would be used against. He says, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Now, history leaves us in no doubt that this was a foretelling of what was really going to happen in the future. But the fact is that there has only, uh, only been one time in history when Jews were at war with Greeks. After the, the death of Alexander in 323 BC, the Greek Empire was divided into three sections and Judah fell into uh, the part that was ruled by a group known as the Seleucids. Now the Seleucid kings were ruthless rulers who disregarded Jewish religious sensibilities. Things came to a climax during the rule of Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled from uh, 175 to 163 BC. He stopped the temple sacrifices from being made, he abolished the Sabbath, he destroyed copies of the scriptures, he forbade circumcision, he erected pagan altars, and in December of 167 BC, he erected an altar in the temple and offered a pig on it. Hardly a masterstroke of tact and diplomacy. Um, predictably, there was an angry response to that desecration of the temple. And it took the form of a, a rebellion that was started by a priest named Mattathias. And his, his life ended soon after the, the rebellion began, but the rebellion continued and the leadership passed uh, to his son named Judas, who came to be known as Judas Maccabeus, who no doubt you, you've heard of, which means the hammer. has a wonderful naughty feel to it, doesn't it? So war was waged against the Greek rule. Well, believers in Christ are not roused to fight against Greeks or any other earthly nation. But we are roused to wage war. Ephesians 6, 11 to 13. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand, uh, to stand firm. Reading on to the end of verse 13, we then see that the Lord not only roused them, but he would revitalise them. We read that the Lord added that he would, uh, he would wield you like a warrior's sword, uh, a more literal translation would be to use you as the sword of a mighty man. We've already seen that the Lord would use them or redeploy them, but now he's saying that he'd use them as the sword of a mighty man. In other words, he'd empower them so that they would be effective uh, as a mighty man's sword. He'd revitalise them so as to make them victorious. And that is exactly what happened. Um, Judas Maccabeus won many stunning victories over the Greek generals. Eventually he occupied Jerusalem and purified the temple and that led to a century of Jewish independence that lasted right up until the coming of the Romans in 63 BC. 
we too can be assured of victory over our enemy. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But we have the promise of victory over the devil. But once again, notice, it's not our doing. It's in the context of submitting ourselves to God. Just as victory over the Greeks uh, was God's doing, so our victory over the devil is also God's doing. So we've seen things that the Lord said he would do for his people. Uh, notice the, the wonderful progression there. It goes from rescue to restoration to being useful to being roused right through to final victory. And that's a good summary, isn't it, of what the Lord does for every believer in Christ. So we've seen who and what and finally, let's notice why. Why would the Lord do all these things for Judah? That they certainly didn't deserve any of it. And the answer's there in verse 11, where the Lord said that it was because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now many commentators seem to take that to be referring to the covenant that the Lord made through Moses at Mount Sinai. However, on the basis of that covenant, the Lord wasn't obligated to bless them because it was a conditional covenant. You know, essentially, that covenant, the Lord said to Israel, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't obey me, I will curse you. And the fact is that they consistently failed to keep their side of the bargain. So they only ever deserved punishment. However, the Lord had previously made a covenant with Abraham that was ratified by the shedding of blood. And that was an unconditional covenant. It took the form of a promise and it pointed to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and would be fulfilled in the new covenant that would be ratified by the shedding of his blood. That was why the Lord rescued, restored, uh, redeployed and revived and revitalized them. It was so that through them, he could ensure the coming of Christ and so keep the unconditional promise that he had made to Abraham. It would lead to the new covenant coming into force because it paved the way for the coming of Christ. He had come as the righteous king, having salvation. So we read in Hebrews 9, 12 to 15, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Why does God bother to rescue us, restore us, and use us, and stir us up and bring us to glory? How can he rescue us and restore us, and so on? Well, he says it's entirely because of the blood of my covenant, 
through the shed blood of Christ, we've been rescued. We've been set free from the waterless pit that the writer to Hebrews tells us that Christ has secured eternal redemption. Through the shed blood of Christ, we've been restored. But the writer of Hebrews again tells us that Christ offered himself to purify our consciences from dead works. Through the shed blood of Christ, we've been made useful because the writer to Hebrews tells us that Christ died so that we might serve the living God. And through the shed blood of Christ, we'll be victorious because the writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ died so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Or may we be prisoners of hope. Not in the sense that we're, we're prisoners, but at least we have some sort of cause for hope. Rather, may we be prisoners of hope in the sense that we are completely captive to the sure hope of the promised eternal inheritance through the shed blood of Christ.